Welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Frozen, frigid, tundra, Baltimore, Maryland. Today I'm joined once again by my partner George Backrack. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording now at three different locations. Our, uh, our website for the firm, wcslaw.com, as a podcast on podbean.com, Surety Today, or our new microsite at suretytoday.net, all one word in lowercase. The new microsite explains all about Surety Today and is a path to requesting a PIN and gaining access to prior presentations. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. We have issued 253 PINs as of today, and over 700 people have called in since we started back in May of 2016. We appreciate everyone's support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. Of course, if you have any suggestions for improvements or topics for the future, let us know. Also, if you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Jeannie Hyatt, that's J. Hyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. She'll get you squared away. We've muted the line during the presentation, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Now, this is the third presentation in a series of surety bankruptcy-related presentations that George and I have given. And as I mentioned before, our surety law group has extensive, extensive experience in the bankruptcy arena having represented sureties in bankruptcy courts in large and small matters all over the country and having written and presented on the subject uh, extensively over the years. On November 13, 2017, we discussed the automatic stay and the property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. Last month, on December 11th, we discussed the debtor's and the surety's rights to the bonded contract funds in bankruptcy. We covered Section 363 of the Code, use of cash collateral, rights of the various parties, defenses of the surety, and so on. Today, we're going to focus on the surety's proof of claim in bankruptcy. One of the primary functions of the bankruptcy process is to ensure that the debtor's pre-petition unsecured creditors share equally in the distribution of the property of the estate. The proof of claim is one of the important tools for accomplishing that fair distribution of the debtor's property. So I'll get us started with a brief introduction to proof of claims. George will follow with a more in-depth look at the types of claims that may be asserted. And then I'll discuss the relationship between reimbursement claims and subrogation claims under the bankruptcy code. Next, George will address the claims administration process. And then I'll discuss um, the claims objection process. And finally, George will close by briefly touching on the post-petition claims. So let's... Um, Let's get started with sort of, a, of an overview. First, I want to take sort of a 30,000-foot overview of bankruptcy in general. When the debtor files a bankruptcy case, no matter whether it's a Chapter 7, 11, uh, or 13, whether there's a trustee involved or a debtor in possession, that filing establishes a bankruptcy estate that is comprised of all of the, debt, of the debtor's properties, uh, property and assets. As we discussed in the prior presentations, the Bankruptcy Code purposely defines uh, property of the bankruptcy estate exceedingly broad so as to capture all of the debtor's property wherever located and by whomever held and in whatever form. 
once all that property is gathered into the estate, it is, it is then distributed to the creditors in an orderly and organized fashion in accordance with the provisions of the Bankruptcy Code. The Bankruptcy Code addresses treatment and priority of administrative claims and secured claims, which George will explain in a moment. To the extent that there is any estate property that is free and clear of the claims of secured and priority creditors, that amount of the debtor's property will be distributed to the debtor's pre-petition unsecured creditors. That's typically where the surety falls into that group. To help identify what the debtor's assets are and who the debtor's creditors are in the bankruptcy code, under Section 521 of the code, the debtor is required to file schedules identifying its assets and creditors. In order to share in any distribution under a plan or liquidation from a bankruptcy estate, the surety must be listed as a creditor with an un, undisputed and liquidated claim. The problem is that frequently the surety may not be listed in the debtor's schedules as a creditor at all, or if the surety is listed, the amount of the surety's claim is not listed correctly, or even if the surety's claim is listed correctly, it will typically be identified as a disputed claim. In addition, at the time a principal or indemnitor files bankruptcy, the surety's claims are typically not fully liquidated as the surety still may be dealing with claims and performance issues. Accordingly, the surety will need to advise the debtor, any trustee, and the court of the true and correct nature of the surety's claims through the filing of a proof of claim under Section 501 of the Bankruptcy Code. But first, let's look at what is a claim under the code because you can't file a proof of claim unless you first have a claim. The Bankruptcy Code defines a claim at Section 101, subsection 5, as a right to payment, whether or not such right is reduced to judgment, liquidated, unliquidated, fixed, contingent, matured, unmatured, disputed, undisputed, legal, equitable, secured, or unsecured. Basically, it's anything uh, It constitutes a claim. The Bankruptcy Code definition of claim is extremely broad and extends to practically every type of claim that a surety may have against the debtor. Even if the claim is not totally contingent and may never become an actual loss for the surety, it would still constitute a claim. It's important to note that the surety's claims typically arise out of an indemnity agreement and bonds that were executed prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. Thus, payments made by the surety after the filing of bankruptcy are included in the surety's claim because such payments will relate back to the pre-petition bond or indemnity agreement. George, take it away. As Mike just stated, uh, a surety's <laughs> claim is a right to payment from the debtor. The surety has a reimbursement claim for its losses, which losses may include payments under the surety bonds and uh, to obligees and other third-party claimants. could be payment of losses under the indemnity agreement, including professional fees and expenses, and it could be payments for premiums for the surety bonds themselves. Each of these payment obligations may be or have been reduced to judgment, liquidated, unliquidated, fixed, contingent, matured, unmatured, disputed, or undisputed, as Mike says. Regardless, they are included in a surety's claim for reimbursement. The surety, whether it is a contract bond surety or commercial bond surety, wants to be reimbursed for its payments and losses and has significant rights, legal, equitable, secured, or unsecured, outside of the bankruptcy case. The surety has common law and indemnity agreement contractual rights of reimbursement, rights against collateral that the surety is holding, and subrogation rights. 
The question is how those rights are affected by and enforceable in a debtor's bankruptcy case based upon the various types of claims that the surety may have. One claim is the surety's secured claim. The surety's reimbursement claim may be secured by rights in or lien on collateral which may be property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. While the automatic stay may prevent the surety from exercising and enforcing its rights against the collateral, the surety's lien rights and other rights in certain collateral may provide the surety with a secured claim against the debtor's real and personal property under Section 506 of the Bankruptcy Code. That collateral and the rights may include letters of credit. The surety may have received a letter of credit as collateral, and we've discussed that in other presentations. The surety may have obtained as collateral mortgages and deeds of trust against the debtor's real property and security agreements and perfected security interests in the debtor's personal property, including cash. The surety may have perfected uh, its security interest under the indemnity agreement in collateral by the filing of a UCC-1 financing statement. The surety may have established a reserve and demanded collateral or to be placed in funds under the indemnity agreement and may be holding collateral as a result. The surety may have obtained a judgment against the principal, now the debtor, under the indemnity agreement and recorded that judgment under state law as a lien against the principal's property. The surety may have certain set-off rights against the principal that may provide either, either a recovery to the surety or the avoidance of an additional loss. The surety may have applicable trust fund rights under the indemnity agreement, which we have discussed previously in other presentations. The surety may be secured by its subrogation rights to the rights of others. The surety should file its proof of claim with respect to its secured claim. Now, the surety's rights as a secured creditor, creditor against the debtor's property are governed by Section 506. The surety's allowed secured claim is secured by a lien on the debtor's property to the extent of the value of the surety's interest in the debtor's estate's interest in the property. What that means is best shown by an example. If the surety's total secured claim is $100,000 and the value of the debtor's estate's interest in the property net of the amount of the prior liens that are superior to the surety's lien is in excess of $100,000, then the surety has a fully secured claim. However, to the extent that the surety is only partially secured, namely the surety's total secured claim is $100,000, but the value of the debtor's estate's interest in the property is less than $100,000, the surety would have a partially secured claim and a partially unsecured claim with respect to the deficiency. Now, there are two variables to any creditor's secured claim, the amount of the claim and the value of the collateral securing the claim. The surety frequently finds that both the amount of its claim and the value of its collateral are variable or unknown. The surety should file its proof of claim as a secured claim, notwithstanding the potential unliquidated, disputed, or contingent nature of the surety's claim. Finally, the surety may be entitled to reimburse, uh, from reimbursement from a secured claim from the collateral for the surety's payments to its attorneys, consultants, and others, and for interest on its payments under the Bankruptcy Code. Now, if the surety doesn't have a secured claim, it may have a general unsecured claim. 
The surety's reimbursement claim may be a pre-petition general unsecured claim against the debtor. Again, the surety must file a proof of claim for the amount of its pre-petition losses, interest, and professional expenses in order to obtain a pro-rata distribution of the debtor's property under the plan or the liquidation. The surety's proof of claim for its general unsecured claim is based upon its common law rights of reimbursement and its indemnity and reimbursement rights under the indemnity agreement and maybe its subrogation rights. The surety should include its liquidated, non-contingent, and undisputed claim for all of the surety's losses, including fees and professional expenses. Um, finally, the surety's proof of claim should assert its contingent and unliquidated claim for all of the surety's possible liabilities and losses in an amount equal to the penal sums of all of the outstanding bonds, less any payments already made. The surety may have a priority unsecured claim, but it's doubtful. Uh, a surety with a pre-petition pre general unsecured claim rarely, if ever, has a priority claim to the property of the debtor's estate as against other general unsecured pre-petition claims. Section 507 of the Bankruptcy Code sets forth certain specific pre-petition claims that have a priority over other general unsecured pre-petition claims. Under Section 507D, however, the surety may not be subrogated to the priority rights of a creditor in the event that the surety pays as part of the surety bond obligations, such as a tax or customs bond, the claim of a creditor that would otherwise have a priority. There are a couple other claims that the surety may have. It may have a reserve claim based upon the reserve established under the indemnity agreement the surety's establishment of a reserve constitutes a loss on the surety's books and may be the basis for a portion of the surety's pre-petition claim. The surety may have a contingent un and unliquidated claim for reimbursement, and Mike will address that later. The surety may have a claim that the debtor rejects an executory contract and such rejection causes a loss to the surety. Well, such a rejection may result in the obligee's filing of a bond claim and cause a subsequent loss to the surety. The surety's rejection claim may be necessary if the proof of claim bar date has expired and the surety's general unsecured claim has already been disallowed. Finally, it is possible that the surety may obtain collateral and or property of the principal that results in the surety receiving a preferential transfer due to the principal's filing of its bankruptcy petition. The surety is entitled to increase its secured or unsecured proof of claim to the extent that the surety must return property subject to such an avoidance action. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. I want to talk about reimbursement claims and subrogation claims. The surety uh, that pays a claim under a bond may have two types of claims under the bankruptcy code. First, a claim for reimbursement or contribution under Section 502 of the Code, and second, a subrogation claim under Section 509 of the Code. The Bankruptcy Code, however, does not allow the surety to have an allowed claim in both categories because that would permit it to effectuate a double recovery. So Section 502E1C provides that the court shall disallow any claim for reimbursement or contribution of an entity that is liable with the debtor on or has secured the claim of a creditor, and that's basically the surety, um, to the extent that such entity asserts a right of subrogation to the rights of such creditor under Section 509. 
So Section 502 is, is basically saying you can, you can have a claim for reimbursement, but not if you've also asserted a claim for, for subrogation. So Section 509A provides that an entity that is liable with the debtor on or that has secured a claim of a creditor against the debtor and that pays such claim is subrogated to the rights of such creditor to the extent of such payment. Thus, Section 509 codifies the basic concept of subrogation, and again, the, uh, the, the code's not going to allow you to assert uh, the, two, two different claims for the same amount. There's a dispute among the courts as to whether Section 509 supplants and replaces equitable subrogation, or whether it supplements equitable subrogation, or whether the two exist independently in bankruptcy. So depending on what jurisdiction you are in, this could have an impact on uh, your analysis and the treatment of, uh, of your claims <coughs> for subrogation. Sorry, fighting a cold. For subrogation to exist under 509, the debtor must have been primarily liable for the indebtedness and must have received the consideration from the creditor. And, of course, sureties typically satisfy this requirement. The surety faced with a decision whether to assert a claim as reimbursement or for subrogation Oh, excuse me, should carefully consider its options by reviewing all aspects of the claims. For example, if the claim for reimbursement would be secured, then it may make the most sense to seek reimbursement. On the other hand, if the reimbursement is not a secured claim, but the claim to which the surety would be subrogated is, then the subrogation may be the best election because the surety would be in a secured position. So you want to evaluate which claim would be better when you're deciding which one to elect. Also, while the surety has to make an election, the surety should be careful to reserve and preserve its alternative rights in its proof of claim to avoid any waiver arguments. Notwithstanding the surety's rights of reimbursement and or subrogation, the surety will not be entitled to a distribution on its allowed claim until the creditors who are the beneficiaries of the contracts and or bonds, whether as obligees or claimants, have been paid in full. Section 509C of the Bankruptcy Code provides that the bankruptcy court shall subordinate the subrogation and reimbursement claim of a co-obligor of the debtor until the underlying creditor's claim is paid in full. So keep that in mind as well. We're going to talk a little bit about the claims administration process. To participate in any of the debtor's distributions to general unsecured creditors and, and to obtain recovery from any collateral to the extent that the surety's claim is a secured claim, the surety must timely file a proof of claim, which is a written statement that sets forth the surety's claim. The Bankruptcy Code and the Bankruptcy Rules set out the requirements for any proof of claim. Initially, the Bankruptcy Court will send out a notice of the debtor's filing of the bankruptcy petition. If the case is a no-asset Chapter 7 liquidation, which we see a lot with, with indemnitors, then the notice will state that, that fact and no proof of claim needs to be filed. If assets are later located, then a new notice with the applicable proof of claim bar date will be sent to all creditors. If the case is an asset, Chapter 7 or Chapter 13 or Chapter 11, then the bankruptcy court will send out a notice of a Section 341 meeting of creditors, and that will set forth the, the proof of claim bar date and all the other deadlines. In some larger Chapter 11 bankruptcy cases, there may be a special notice of a bar date order and deadline. 
if you know that one of your principals or indemnitors has filed a bankruptcy case and you as a surety has not received a notice of the case from the bankruptcy court, and this happens very frequently, then the surety must locate where the bankruptcy case was filed and obtain any proof of claim bar date, notices, or orders. Now there's a standard form 410 cover sheet for most proofs of claims, although again in some larger bankruptcy cases they have their own cover sheet forms. The proof of claim is filed with a bankruptcy court unless, again, in some larger bankruptcy cases, a specific claims agent at some other location is named. Now, the proof of claim form cover sheet does not have enough room to adequately describe the surety's proof of claim. Therefore, the surety must attach the surety's proof of claim narrative that sets forth the nature of the surety's claims. This includes the types of the surety claims, the basis for the surety claims, and the amount of the surety's claims, whether they are liquidated or contingent. There are a number of documents to attach to the surety's proof of claim narrative. Generally, these include the indemnity agreement, a list of the surety bonds, and, and the amounts of the surety's payments, although you don't have to give a list of the surety's payments uh, per se. If the surety is filing a secured claim, more documentation is necessary. The proof of claim narrative should include written evidence of the surety's liens and or interest in collateral, including where appropriate a description of the surety's liens and security interests in the debtor's property and attaching all evidence and documents concerning the surety's liens and security interests. If there's a judgment, there should be a description of that judgment and attaching a copy of the judgment to the proof of claim and any other evidence and documentation concerning the attachment of that judicial lien to any of the debtor's real or personal property. There should be a reservation of all the surety's rights in any set-offs, and there should be a description of and reservation of the surety's subrogation rights. Finally, the proof of claim narrative should include the surety's reservation of or non-waiver of rights in the proof of claim, especially the surety's right to amend or supplement its proof of claim, among others. There are many such reservations of rights, um, too many to list, uh, but they should be considered. Mike? All right, thanks, George. All right, so I'm going to talk about the claims objection process. Section 502 of the code deals with the allowance or disallowance of claims. Whether a claim is allowed or not is important because it determines whether the party can participate in the distribution of the assets and also only allowed claims can vote under Chapter 11 plans. As the surety's proof of claim is executed uh, or after it's executed and filed under Section 501, the proof of claim is deemed allowed under Section 502A and is prima facie evidence of the validity and the amount of the surety's claim. However, an objection to the surety's proof of claim may be asserted. The claim objection process is spelled out in the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure, Rule 3007. This rule provides that any party in interest may file an objection to a claim. Parties in interest may include the debtors, trustees, debtors in possession, and in certain limited cases may also include other creditors. Section 3007 generally sets forth the form of the objection and the procedure for filing. However, the rule does not set a deadline for the filing of objections to claims. Section 704 of the code regarding the obligations of trustees requires that trustees examine claims and object 
quote, if a purpose would be served, unquote. Often it will not be known until later in the case whether there are substantial assets to be distributed and thus whether the parties and the court should invest time in determining claims objections. So there's sort of a pragmatic approach to the timing of objection um, that you'll find in the case. Once an objection is filed, it becomes a contested matter and an adversary proceeding in the bankruptcy and is subject to traditional due process requirements and Rule 9014 of the Bankruptcy Rules. It may be helpful to think of the claims objection process in the typical litigation setting. The filing of the proof of claim is similar to the filing of a complaint in a normal litigation matter, and the objection to the claim is similar to an answer. Once the objection is filed, the issues are then joined and the case proceeds as a litigation matter. As noted, the filing of the proof of claim is considered prima facie proof of the validity and amount of the claim. Thus, the burden is on the objecting party to provide evidence disputing the claim as well as any affirmative defenses like statutes of limitations, set-off, usury, whatever. Once the objecting party meets its burden of rebutting the prima facie claim, the burden then shifts to the claimant to prove the claim. The amount of a claim is determined as of the date of the filing of the bankruptcy, but as we noted earlier, Payments made by the surety post-petition will relate back to the pre-petition bond or indemnity agreement. Section 502 sets forth a number of grounds for objecting to a proof of claim. Such grounds include that the claim is unenforceable against the debtor and property of the debtor under contract or applicable law, that the claim is for unmatured interest, that the claim was not timely filed, uh, etc. There's a whole list of different uh, objections for all kinds of, of unique and specific circumstances under 502. Rule 3007 also provides as a basis for objection that the claim is a duplicate claim or that it has been resolved, settled, or satisfied, or that the claim was filed in the wrong format or the wrong case, et cetera, other procedural issues. Rule 3007 also, also establishes the so-called omnibus claims objection which allows the objecting party to object to up to 100 claims at the same time in the same document as long as the objections are of a procedural nature. So you need to be vigilant with these omnibus objections because so many claims are lumped together, it can be easy to miss the fact that an objection has been filed to your claim. As we discussed earlier, the surety's claim is typically under its indemnity agreement for reimbursement. Section 502E1 of the Bankruptcy Code provides that the court shall disallow any claim for reimbursement or contribution of an entity that is liable with the debtor on or has secured the claim of a creditor to the extent that such claim for reimbursement or contribution is contingent as of the time of allowance or disallowance of such claim for reimbursement or contribution. Thus, when the surety has paid claims under its bonds and incurred attorney's fees and consulting fees or has unpaid premiums due, such amounts are liquidated and certain and are generally recoverable as claims under the surety's equitable rights, common law rights, or the indemnity agreement. If the surety still has exposure under bonds, it is issued prior to the bankruptcy, and it is possible that claims may still be made someday in the future. Such claims are unliquidated and contingent, and the court must disallow those claims uh, for reimbursement to the extent provided in 502E1. However, if Section 506D applies, the surety may be able to retain a lien on any collateral for those um, contingent, unliquidated claims. 
Section 506D basically provides that if a claim is disallowed solely under 502E1 because it's contingent or unliquidated, and the claimant is holding collateral, its lien on that collateral will remain. So while the proof of claim may be disallowed, the surety will be able to retain its collateral and reimburse itself from the collateral if a disallowed contingent unliquidated claim becomes liquidated in the future. It should also be noted that both the allowance and disallowance of claims may be reconsidered for cause and in accordance with the equities of the case under 502J. Switching gears a little bit, the surety may have post-petition claims. A creditor's post-petition claims are paid in full before there are any distributions to the debtor's pre-petition general unsecured creditors. As, as a result, a creditor such as a surety would pr prefer to have post-petition claims. The surety must be aware of what it pays and the timing. Not the timing of the payment, but the timing of the obligation that the debtor incurs for which the surety makes a payment under a bond. For example, an allowed administrative expense claim is one such post-petition claim that a surety may have that must be paid in full before there are any distributions to the debtor's pre-petition general unsecured creditors. One example may be post-petition renewal premiums for commercial surety bonds, license bonds, tax bonds, and others that are necessary for the debtor's business operations to continue during the bankruptcy case and post-petition. Furthermore, the surety may be subrogated to the administrative expense claim of some obligee, such as a utility bond obligee that the surety pays under the bond. For example, a commercial surety debtor, such as a retailer, may establish a fund in the bankruptcy case to pay such utility bills incurred by the debtor post-petition. If the surety pays the post-petition utility bond claim, the surety may have subrogation rights to that obligee's rights to the fund for the reimbursement of the surety's payment. The surety uh, may also have a claim if the debtor assumes an executory contract bonded by the surety. In that event, the debtor must cure or provide adequate assurance that it will promptly cure any and all defaults. If the surety has made payments on the bonds for that contract, the debtor was probably in default of its payment obligations under the bonded contract. The debtor must cure the defaults by reimbursing the surety for its payments and must provide adequate assurance of future performance to the surety to avoid future defaults before the bonded contract can be assumed or assumed and assigned to another entity. Finally, the surety may have a post-petition administrative expense claims and maybe even secured claims for issuing new surety bond credit post-petition to the debtor. Remember, as we've said previously, however, that a surety's post-petition payment for an obligation, whether it's under an indemnity agreement or a bond, executed pre-petition is not provided any <coughs> post-petition rights or priorities to the assets of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. Mike? Okay. Sorry, we're running a little late here, it looks like. Uh, before I open up the line for questions, I want to let everybody know that the next surety today will be Monday, February 12th at 12.30 Eastern Time, of course. George and I will pre present the surety case law update. I think we're looking back to cases from June uh, up till now. Events in the surety industry, of course, the ABA FSLC midwinter meeting will be held January 24th to 26th in Washington. 
I'm speaking with Jamie Perkins from Merchants on uh, builders' risk issues. The, the Chicago Surety Claims Association's next lunch is February 1st. The Philadelphia Surety Claims lunch will be February 28th. And finally, just a quick shout-out to Christina Craddock with Liberty because she's a huge uh, Georgia Bulldogs fan, and uh, good luck to the dogs in the college football championship tonight. Of course, if any clients of mine uh, are Alabama fans, then I say roll tide. Uh, let's unmute the line. Okay, we have any questions out there today? Yeah, a, a Mike Ed Dudley from Great American here. Yeah, hi Ed. Okay, so I think I understood you and George saying that when uh, when a claim was still contingent after the hard uh, date, it would may be disallowed under five two, but pretty may still may may maintain. A, a lien on collateral if, it, if it's a secured creditor. How long does that lien stay in place? Cause let, that, let's that's funny, Ed. Both George and I are sitting here uh, laughing because we have that exact issue right now in a case where where we we were holding the surety was holding collateral and it's been. Ten years since the bankruptcy was filed, and we're still holding that collateral, and we're fighting with the trustee now over uh, whether whether the collateral has to be released or not. And basically, it, it comes down to an issue of whether you still have risk and exposure. A lot of times, you know, you've got a collateral agreement, and that'll that'll define when you got to give the collateral back or not. But if you don't have that, then it's a question. You know, it'll come down to maybe statute of limitations, those kinds of things. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks. <coughs> There's also a reasonableness argument that Mike and I uh, d d discuss all the time is what is reasonable under the circumstances is 10 years reasonable, but if the statute of limitations is a 20 or 30 year statute of limitations, then why isn't that a reasonable time? It's, a, it's not an easy issue. Thank you. Are there other questions? All right, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Okay. I'm done. That's all right. I didn't receive a one. Did you? I 